Hi there, I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, your fabulous weekly music series all about the art of singing and the best of the vocal music scene from the Bay Area and beyond. Thanks for joining me this evening. This week is a special week for ensemble singing here in the Bay Area and also for vocalists nationwide. Chorus America, an important support organization for the choral community based in Washington, D.C., is hosting its 34th annual conference right here in San Francisco at the Conservatory of Music. On tonight's show, I'm in the studio with Anne Meyer Baker, President and CEO of Chorus America. Hello, Anne. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted too. Over the next hour, we're going to be looking at the state of choral music in this country and what lies ahead for the choral arts. But before we get into our interview with Anne, we have this audio postcard from the conference by Voicebox's intrepid reporter, Molly Samuel. Let's have the basses on the C. Off, basses. Tenors, G. Altos, C. Philip Rennell, the artistic director of Minneapolis-based Vocal Essence, is on stage at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, directing a concert hall full of chorus directors, educators, administrators, and fundraisers. It's the morning sing. One of the hallmarks of Chorus America conferences is that we start each morning off with a sing. I'm Todd Estabrook. I am now uh, the immediate past chair of Chorus America, and I'm also the immediate past chair of the Handel and Haydn Society from Boston. Okay, enough for that. <laughs> this is our annual um, party. Uh, we draw people from all over the continent um, and from all different kinds of choruses. My name is Greg Keeler. This is a first ever Chorus America conference for me. I'm the incoming president of the Madrigal Choir of Binghamton, New York, so I want to absorb as many great ideas as I can, and so far, so good. I, my name is Ellie Elkinton, and I come from Philadelphia, where I am the board chair of Mendelssohn Club Chorus of Philadelphia. I'm uh, Justin Montine. I'm a singer and the secretary of the board with Clear Story, a professional male a cappella group here in the Bay Area. This is my first time at Chorus America Conference, but I'm finding that I know uh, just about every other person, which is fun. Eugene Rogers is my name. I'll soon be going to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and, di and direct several choirs there. The Michigan Men's Glee Club, the University Choir will be my main ensemble. I'm Debbie Rosted with the Michael O'Neill Singers in Roswell, Georgia, the suburb of Atlanta. And this is my second Course America conference. My name is Albert McNeil. I live in Hermosa Beach, California. I'm a native California. I've been coming to this organization almost 20 years. 
Hundreds of people attend the conference, which has sessions on fundraising, on artistic direction, programming, and a cappella arrangement. So the programming at the Chorus America conference, um, we try and hit many major topics. Okay, so I'm looking around, what's out there for children's choir and music that's so incredible? Uh, I asked the donors, how do you want to stay connected? Do you want newsletters? Do you want e-blasts? Do you want phone calls? Do you want lunches? Mozart, Bach, Beethoven. They didn't really write for children. Vivaldi had the girls' choir, of course, and, the, and there's a lot of arrangements. So what I noticed is that the arrangements of music were originally for, the music was originally for adults. College acapella groups are like rock stars mm -hmm. on, on different campuses. I mean, people like, they've got a concert. I mean, this happened in the Beelzebub. There's a concert in the chapel. So many people can't get in, they want to get in. Break stained glass windows by mistake because they're just like hordes of people. I'm talking about acapella music. Yeah. Guys singing acapella music. This isn't the football team. This isn't a frat party. <laughs> people who are involved in choruses uh, are fun people. There is joy and emotion, deep felt, um, that choral music uh, communicates. It's special. Okay, we're going to sing, uh, you all know Deep and Wide? Right? Okay, a little, little camp song. Okay, just uh, if you would uh, give me a C major chord. Choral singing has always been with us as human beings, and it always will be. I know, millennia from now, human beings will be singing. Deep and wide, deep and wide is a fountain flowing deep and wide. Deep and wide, deep and wide is a fountain flowing deep and wide. If you've just joined us, this is Voicebox and I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. Tonight's hour is devoted to looking at the choral music landscape today. That story, reported from Chorus America's 34th annual conference happening this week in San Francisco, was produced by Molly Samuel. I'm in the studio with Anne Meyer-Baker, President and CEO of Chorus America. First off, Anne, can you tell us briefly what Chorus America is and what it does? Sure. Chorus America is the advocacy organization for choruses of all kinds. We're concerned about the whole choral field, and from our perch in Washington, D.C., we look out after all of the concerns of choruses. Our members tend to be those that are not affiliated with a school or a church, but in fact are independent organizations that have to run a little 501c3 business all the while as they're concerned with their making their great music. So we provide information that helps the conductors, the board members, the administrators, and we look after the singers as well. Wow, that's a mammoth task. How many people work at Chorus America? Just 10, but we're very busy. I imagine that, yeah. So tell us about your annual conference. What's its main purpose and goals? It's our annual opportunity to bring together the whole choral family. This is our 34th annual conference, and we're delighted to be in San Francisco. We've seen such an enormous outpouring. We have more people coming to this conference than we've seen in a long time, and huh. it's the first time we've ever sold out. So we just had to turn people away for the first time in our history. That's amazing. So why has that happened right now? Is it that there are more people singing in courses than ever before, or is it something about the allure of San Francisco? Or? Well, I like to think it's how strong our program is uh, uh -huh. this year, but certainly San Francisco is a wonderful destination for our conference, and there is the lure of the wine country as well. Okay. Well, can you tell us about what have been some of the highlights for you so far? 
well, this conference in particular has been just packed with things. We have all of our typical kinds of uh, plenary sessions and great speakers and breakout sessions, but we've also had a huge infusion of choral opportunities, um, a chance to hear a lot of different kinds of music, to experience conducting master classes, to look at different sorts of repertoire. So we've really been teeming with opportunities, especially for conductors of choruses to get recharged, re-energized, and some new ideas to bring back to their own organizations. Okay. And you've got an amazing uh, opening keynote speaker that you had earlier this week, John Adams, right? right. John Adams interviewed by Grant Gershon from the LA Master Chorale. Uh, both of them, you know, powerhouses uh, in their own right and just terrific to have them kick off our conference. Yeah. Well, speaking of John Adams, let's hear an excerpt of a profound piece of writing for chorus by the eminent Bay Area-based composer. Here's On the Transmigration of Souls, John Adams's Pulitzer Prize-winning work for children's chorus, chorus, orchestra, and tape. The recording features Lauren Marzel conducting the New York Philharmonic Orchestra with the New York Choral Artists and the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. tuned into Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. On tonight's show, all about the state of the choral arts in this country with special guest, Chorus America President and CEO Anne Meyer Baker, we just heard an excerpt of one of the great contemporary choral works, On the Transmigration of Souls, by John Adams, who is a keynote speaker at the 34th Chorus America Conference, which is happening this week in San Francisco. This recording of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work for Children's Chorus, Chorus, Orchestra and Tape features Lauren Marzel conducting the New York Philharmonic Orchestra with the New York Choral Artists and the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. Anne, what does a piece like On the Transmigration of Souls demonstrate about the power of choral music? Oh my goodness, it's so moving. And one of the things about it that's so powerful is that it's about something that we all experienced. And so, you know, sometimes when I'm asked to differentiate choruses from orchestral music or some other kind of music, one of the things we have going for us are, is words. Yeah. And so often the pieces of music that we sing are about something mm-hmm. that is powerful like this. And so... Yeah, in this case, the piece being it was a commemoration for the September the 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade exactly. Center. Exactly. And as we get to the 10-year anniversary here, um, we're anticipating this piece will be performed a lot by many of our member choruses, which is one of the reasons we are excited to have John Adams with us this week. So, uh, you know, it's about something that's moving. The words that we have to sing um, are delivered up while facing our audiences. You know, we're not sitting down, staring at uh, music on a stand Mm -hmm. and not able to catch the audience's eye. So there's very little barrier between what's on the stage and who's in the audience and I think that can be particularly moving. Yeah and also I think the fact that in this particular piece you have 
huge forces at work, you know, not only an adult chorus, but also a children's chorus. And this whole sort of community that a, a work, a masterwork like this brings together is, is pretty awesome, I think. Yes. And there are other pieces like that as well. You know, the Britain War Requiem, for example, comes to mind. One of the most moving experiences I've ever had is listening to that work. There's something about hearing children, adults, this orchestra, uh, important words, a key message that is like none other. Right. So um, in the entire Chorus America spectrum, you have a lot of choirs made up of, of adults, obviously, but you have a lot of children's choruses represented too, right? We do, absolutely. What percentage, roughly, of your membership are children's choruses? Do you know? Oh, I'm going to guess about 20% right now. Um, yeah. There was a period at which the fastest growing segment of our membership were independent children and youth choruses, and I huh. think this was a direct result of what parents like me were doing, because we were frustrated that our own children maybe weren't getting what we got when we were going through school in terms okay. of the opportunities to sing and sing. So frustrated parents like me uh, helped to start children and youth choruses so that we could supplement our children's education outside of school and huh. give them the opportunity. Okay. But so membership among children's choruses has sort of slowed up a bit in the last few years, would you say then? I think it's leveled off. It really swelled for a while mm -hmm. and now has leveled off some. So where do you see children's choruses fitting into the whole spectrum of, of uh, choruses in this country? Oh my goodness, they're the future. Because uh, by and large, the people who are singing choruses today started singing in elementary and middle school. Right. Some of them sang in church, but our research says they started in elementary and middle school. And so we worry today, if there aren't those elementary and middle school programs, where are the future choral singers going to get their first taste of how yeah. wonderful this can be for a lifetime? Right. So those children's choruses are doing an amazing job of kind of keeping getting those kids singing in the first place and hopefully encouraging them to continue later on. Absolutely. So let's hear now from a great local children's chorus. Here's the San Francisco Girls Chorus with a setting by Augusta Reed Thomas of Sky Candy Spouting Violets. I love that title. A poem by E.E. E. Cummings. The track, which was recorded live, comes from the album Heaven and Earth. This is Voicebox with Chloe Veltman, and that was Augusta Reed Thomas's Sky Candy Spouting Violets, a song based on a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. The track, which was recorded live by the San Francisco Girls Chorus, comes from their album Heaven and Earth. On tonight's show, Anne Meyer Baker of Chorus America is with me in the studio for a discussion about the state of the choral arts in this country. When I got to Chorus America about 10 years ago, people always ask how many people sing in choruses, how many choruses are there, because we knew, thanks to uh, research from the National Endowment for the Arts and others, that more people were involved in choruses than any other performing art, but we didn't really have our hands around the numbers particularly. Mm -hmm. So we commissioned research in 2003, and then more recently, uh, once again, to try to track and see if there were trends. Are there more mm -hmm. people singing today than before or fewer? And the 
research really has been staggering. The numbers amazed even us. So right now, uh, we have an estimated 42.6 million people singing in choruses on a regular basis. Wow, in the U.S. In the U.S. and in 270,000 choruses or so. Now, that's including school choirs and church choirs of all kinds here, in addition to the choruses that are typically affiliated with Chorus America. So really, it's um, an amazing number of people for whom this becomes a way of life. We know, for example, that people who sing in choruses frequently tend to sing in more than one. So it's something they can do for a lifetime, and it really becomes their lifestyle. So um, do you, could you give us an idea of how that number has grown since when you first... So that was a number from like 2008, 2009, right? But the number in 2003 was a lot less or...? It was a similar. So we were pleased to see that we were holding our own yeah. given everything that's going on in the economy and in our mm. world today and, as I mentioned earlier, around arts education. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. So why do you think all these people are singing in choruses? Well, it's... You know, there's so many wonderful things about this. First of all, choruses help build communities, and we can talk about that mm-hmm. too. But they become communities of their own. This is where you meet people you wouldn't meet otherwise. You get to know someone that, you know, you wouldn't meet and have the opportunity to get to know. We actually did uh, add a few questions in some of the research that we've done about whether or not you met your partner, uh, your life partner in a chorus. And in fact, the numbers were pretty impressive. So yeah. I kept trying to get my staff to let me you know, have the headline in our press release be, don't join a dating service, join a chorus. But <laughs> they gave me thumbs down on that. Oh, that would have been a great, that would have definitely <laughs> caught the eye of the media, I think. And that would have been a great, uh, I suppose, Valentine's Day story around. I know, you should have been there. You could have rooted for me. Uh, But it really becomes a wonderful community opportunity. And face it, the opportunity to get away from your computer, to go to a rehearsal, to make great music together that you couldn't make by yourself is really something pretty special. This is Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. Mexico, Mexico, Trinidad, 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 Trinidad,
Chloe Veltman and you're listening to Voicebox. This evening, the CEO and President of Chorus America, Anne Maya Baker, is with me in the studio for a discussion about the choral landscape in America today. We just heard from four choruses representing a tiny fraction of the diverse forms that the art of choral singing takes in this country. First up was a rendition of David Bowie's Golden Years as performed by Young at Heart, a chorus based in Northampton, Massachusetts, whose members are all 70 years of age or over. And then we heard the chorus Vocal Essence, based in Minnesota, with an arrangement of the Negro spiritual Were You There? It was arranged by R. Schultz. And then the Turtle Creek Chorale, a chorus consisting of gay men, gave us their rhythmic take on the geographical fugue by Ernst Toch. And finally, the Women's Sing Chorus, based in the Bay Area, which of course just has female voices in it, performed Antonio Vivaldi's Beatosphere. And why do so many choruses define themselves by things like race and age and gender and sexuality? I don't know if they define themselves by that so much as uh, it just is a wonderful diversity of ways to be involved in the choral art. I loved that foursome that you just played for us and ending with women sing that we just got to hear at the conference was wonderful. Yeah, um, you know, there are a cappella choruses and big symphonic choruses and gay and lesbian choruses that are concerned as much with social change as they are with the singing, perhaps. There are choruses that focus particularly on education, whether it's children or um, lifelong learning that they're trying to share with the whole community. There are choruses that are interested in highest standards of performances and others that open the doors and say, you don't have to audition, you all can come. So whether you're singing with a single gender chorus or it's something focused on a particular repertoire, we have where I live, the Washington Bach Consort that's uh, concerned mostly with the music of Bach, although they veer off now and then. Mm -hmm. So there's really something for everyone. And if there's an area of interest, I bet I can find a chorus for you to sing in. Yeah, right. That's interesting. I think what you mentioned just now about the, the sort of veering off occasionally is also a very a thing that we do see in choruses. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon in a chorus that's primarily a, a say a, a gay chorus that some of the members aren't gay. You know, it's it's it is sometimes the case. Um, and yeah, cho- choruses that sing primarily contemporary repertoire, like the one I sing in International Orange Chorale, we occasionally veer off and do uh, a piece by somebody, you know, by William Byrd, say. So, I mean, do you think that that's something that, that do you think that choruses should kind of be reaching out more than that? Or how important is it for them to sort of stay within their identity? One of the wonderful things about choruses is that there are so few barriers to participation. And there are so few barriers to say that 
you should not just do contemporary music with International Orange Chorale, but let's just for fun go back and do this other piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, goodness, I think exploration is important. It helps the singers grow. It makes the audiences hear you differently. More is better as far as I'm concerned. So what does the incredible diversity in choruses around the country say about the health of choral singing today? Well, I think we are clearly alive and well, and the opportunities to sing in choruses, the great value that they bring communities, both in terms of their service to communities and also delivering great art is terrific. So we are alive and well. And while some of our sister organizations in other fields have really felt the pinch during these economic challenges, we've weathered the storm pretty well. That's not to say we haven't had to tighten our belt and that we don't wish for more funding and Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But by and large, we are a resilient, positive bunch of people who will sing no matter what. In terms of the repertoire, what can we glean from the vast repertoire that's being performed? I mean, it's all over the place. We just heard a little bit, you know, four different choirs singing music that's extremely different. Yeah. I remember one time we had Tom Kelly, who's at Harvard University, speak at one of our conferences. And someone asked him the question, what is choral music? Because it seems to be so many things. And he's a historian and certainly knows his uh, stuff. And he said, I think choral music is whatever a chorus sings. And I agree with that. I think the uh, opportunities for choruses to sing all kinds of things and all this repertoire is really where it's at. And we're not limited by very much at all. It's a really low barrier to entry in a way, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of for everyone, right? Absolutely. I mean, for some choruses, the barrier to entry is not so low. So Very high in certain cases, like Chanticleer. Chanticleer, uh, another chorus that we got to hear this week at the conference and who also led for us a community sing, which is a very exciting new element for us at the conference and sort of in the world. But yeah, so the barrier to entry to get into Chanticleer, not so low. But there are certainly a lot of opportunities out there for people who want to get involved. What would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on listening to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman and with me in the studio is Anne Meyer Baker, CEO and President of Chorus America. We're talking about the landscape for choral music in this country. The song we just heard featured the entire group of competing choruses singing a famous Beatles song with a little help from my friends in an episode of NBC's choral music focused TV series The Sing-Off. That track to my mind, says a lot about the nature of choral singing. The fact that the track features a collaboration between ensembles that are actually in competition with each other, singing harmoniously together, suggests that being in a choir is all about getting along with your fellow human beings. And of course, the song, with a little help from my friends, is the ultimate hymn to cooperation. 
I play this song, Anne, as a way into talking about some of the research that's been done about the positive behaviour that being in a chorus inspires, not only in the individual, but in the community. Can you tell us about that, please? Absolutely. And I loved hearing that, too. Deke Sharon, one of the producers of the sing-off, has been featured at our conference that's this right. week. Yeah, Deke's been on this show a couple of times, too. Well, and I'm a big fan of that. That's one of our family shows. We all sit down and watch the sing-off and then uh, decide and fuss with one another about who our favorite is. So in our research that was to determine the number of people singing choruses and the number of choirs, we were also interested in who are these people. And so we did a lot of research about what their characteristics were. And we found that people who sing in choruses tend to be really good citizens, if you will. So, Mm -hmm. for example, they're more likely to vote in national and local elections than is a member of the general public. They're more generous in terms of their time and money to philanthropic causes beyond their own chorus than other people as well. So one thing and another uh, just added up to the point where you think, these are people I want in my community. Now, whether or not they're good for communities because they sing in choruses or they, you know, do we cause that or are we the effect of that? I don't know. But if the point is, if you're looking for good citizens, you ought to look for a choir. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There are certain communities, well, like in Detroit, for example, there's um, a choruses, youth choruses, the Mosaic Chorus, I guess, that has made such a difference, I believe, in, in its community in terms of, you know, the neighborhoods just kind of getting cleaned up. And a lot of people are attributing the greater feelings of citizenship that people have over there to the fact that kids are getting more involved in the chorus, they're getting off the streets there. So, um, you know, I think that there are actual tangible there's tangible evidence that mm-hmm. shows that um, the activities, I mean, it's not just choruses. I think, you know, active, uh, being involved in the arts in general probably um, has those kinds of more community-minded effects. Do you, do you, have, do you know anything about how um, p- people who participate in choral music compare in terms of, you know, the attributes to, compared to, say, people who are painter, into painting or into, into uh, you know, other forms of art, um, theatre? Now, we no. haven't looked at it in terms of different kinds yeah. of art participation, but I can add that a lot of times choruses are very intentional about the way they act on this. For mm-hmm. example, we know of a chorus in our membership that for each concert, they choose some social service agency to link arms with, and all the proceeds of a particular mm-hmm. concert goes to that social service agency, and they get to know one another, and they work together in a very intentional way. So it's not just the random act of kindness from these individual singers, mm-hmm. but also how the collective puts their energy together to further something yeah. as a chorus. Now, I wonder whether, um, you know, this sort of community-minded feeling also stems from the fact that a lot of people who are in choruses are doing the singing, I mean, purely out of love. I mean, okay, there are professional choruses um, that are getting paid and it's their job. But I mean, for a lot of people in this country, it's really a thing that that's very much driven by passion and, and, and that's the thing that makes them get up and sing and so on. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of, uh, therefore, community-minded activities uh, in terms of people going out into the community and singing for, like in old people's homes or in nurseries and engaging engaging the community in different ways and, and really just for the sheer... I guess, pleasure of it, right? Right. Um, But then there's also this aspect of choral singing. You know, you mentioned at the top of the show that a lot of the organisations that are are members of Chorus America are non-profit organisations. They're all running their own 501c3s. And so, I mean, I guess out of that non-profit spirit as well comes a feeling of, 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 of understanding, you know, 
what it is to be in a community and and ideas about cooperation, exchange, and so on. But I mean, I don't know. Do you? What's your perception? Well, I think um, the point you made about people doing this for the love of it is really clear. But I wouldn't say that only singers who are amateurs, unpaid volunteer singers are doing it for the love right. of it. Right. No, I, think, so I didn't uh, mean to imply that. No, but I, I think a professional singer would knock us down if they thought that uh, that they weren't in love with what they were doing sure. as well. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. But I think that, uh, you know, there's something about a community chorus that it's it's pure passion based because it's not like people in, the, in those choruses are making any money through singing. You know, there's there's that's, I mean, a, a professional singer, it's also their job, you know, which doesn't mean they bring any less passion to it. But, you know, um, our research has also shown that people who sing in volunteer courses who are not paid to sing oftentimes have degrees in music. Mm. So maybe you got that degree in music and then you decided, yeah, I'm going to study law now or I'm going to go in a different direction. But still in all, when they contribute to their chorus, they have the training, the information, the knowledge to really help that chorus sound fantastic. That's true. And I, on that same theme, I mean, I think because a lot of people who sing in courses come from different professions, they often lend their professional expertise in different ways to making their organisations work. You know, I mean, I have a friend who uh, is a copyright lawyer and it's been very useful in this, the course that he's in to have that sort of expertise about how, how to handle copyright. You know, he brings that. And other people who come from marketing or advertising can bring those skills to, to bear. So. Absolutely. The savvy chorus knows to put those people on their board. Exactly. Exactly. This is Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. listening to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman and with me in the studio is Anne Meyer Baker, CEO and President of Chorus America. We're talking about the choral music landscape in this country today. We just heard the great San Francisco-based professional chorus Chanticleer singing two contrasting tracks from their repertoire. First up was Chen Yi's Wild Grass from Tang Poems, which comes from the group's Colours of Love album. And then we went back a few centuries to hear a gorgeous Ave Regina Chalorum by Palestrina. Let's talk about repertoire and Chanticleer is a group that can and does pretty much sing anything, but it started out more or less performing early music. What are the advantages and disadvantages for choruses of singing a broad repertoire versus sticking to one kind of music, whether it be exclusively contemporary repertoire or political songs or songs written by Russian composers or whatever? 
I do think it's important for choruses to figure out some way to define themselves, to distinguish themselves from others. But it may not be all about the repertoire. It could be other things as well. So for me, I'm an omnivore. I love all kinds of choral music, and I prefer to go to a concert and hear a lot of different sorts of things. So that's just me speaking. But I think uh, you know, defining yourself by your repertoire can be limiting. It also can be exciting if it's really your claim to fame, if you do that better than anyone else. But I think diversity of repertoire can be a plus, too. Right. Um, beyond the fact that some choruses pay their singers, what are the main differences that you perceive between so-called amateur and professional choruses? Or is it just a big sort of gray area, really, between them? Well, I think any chorus on any given night in any community can deliver a transcendent experience. Right. That's a fact. We hear it over and over again. But professional choruses have, bring something special to a community. Typically, they can learn music faster, perhaps, than an amateur chorus. They can get through more repertoire, more demanding repertoire. And also, they bring so many other things to their city where they live. So they're likely to be the ones teaching voice lessons and coaching people and able to help with diction and other sorts of things. So in addition to being wonderful in terms of their own professional choruses, the ripple effect that they bring to those communities can be really valuable as well. Okay, yeah. And what about the audiences for choral music? Um, Do you think that um, the audiences are growing? What's your perception of who's listening to concerts and, and how can choirs attract bigger and more diverse audiences? Audiences are a big question for everybody right now, and um, I don't know anyone who's not concerned about building audiences, that's for sure. But what's interesting is all of the research around audiences relates not only to competing, let's say, against the orchestra for the size of the audience, but more and more it's about completing with a sofa tonight. So mm-hmm. I saw a Yankelovich poll not too long ago that said when given a surprising evening off that you're mm-hmm. not anticipating, what does the average person do? Do they go out and see friends? Do they go to a concert? Oh no, they stay home. I know wow. I'm guilty of that yeah, uh, because we're, we're all so stretched. Yeah. Exactly. So I think we're competing with so many things. What's on television, what's on mm-hmm. our CD, um, and just the chance to get to bed early. Yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, I think that there are obviously there are choral music already is is uh, something that maybe wouldn't occur to a lot of people outside of the choral, choral world already who don't have friends already to go and experience. Um, and then within that, the ones that would want to do that, I mean, what are their reasons for going? I mean, a lot of the times it's either, oh, you know, we really love this fantastic top of the line professional chorus like Chanticleer, or we have friends in this community chorus and we want to go and support them. But beyond that, how do you really encourage people to get out and go to a a choral concert. If 42 million people are singing in choruses, that's 42 million people who like choral music. And I know when I sit in an audience and I hear some groups singing a piece that I know, I am singing the alto part along with them with gusto. Sometimes Mm -hmm. um, my husband will tease me if I'm humming at home. He'll say, you know that's the alto part, don't you? That's not the melody. But for me, it's my melody. And mm-hmm. um, so I think we're all pulling for one another. And the opportunity to go hear uh, another chorus sing uh, is a draw. So mm-hmm. there's something about just the sheer participation that also helps mm-hmm. feed the yeah. audience as well. I have to say, a chorus in the city where I live recently did uh, something I'd never heard of before. They did a Carmina Burana sing-along. Oh, fantastic. 
And I thought it was fantastic and risky and crazy. I imagine it would be a complete train wreck because that's not that easy to sing along with. It's not your Messiah sing along. Sure. So I went with some intrigue and trepidation to see how this might work. And the first question the conductor asked of the audience was, how many of you in this huge church that was packed. How many of you have sung Carmina Burana before? Mm -hmm. And I assumed all the hands would go up and that all the people in the audience would be singers who just wanted to come sing that one more time. In fact, no, the number of hands that went up was so few that I really got worried about (laughs) And how did it go? But it was okay. Um, They had some strong leaders that made it all work Uh. out. But the point is, they had a blast. And these were people who had always heard Carmina Burana, but never got the chance to sing it. So there they were, no matter how hard it might be, no matter if they knew when to turn the pages or not, they had a blast. What is it we shall hope for from the 2008 Easter performance of the Redeemer, performed by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? The piece is written by the choir's organist emeritus, Robert Kudnick. I'm Chloe Veltman, the host and executive producer of Voicebox. For tonight's discussion about choruses, I'm lucky to have in the studio with me Anne Meyer Baker, the CEO and president of Chorus America. And the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is the mother of church choruses in this country. And obviously a great wealth of choral repertoire has come out of a strong relationship between vocal music for ensembles and organised religion. To what extent does the choral world's strong associations with churches and other religious institutions help or even hamper perceptions of choruses among would-be singers and the general public? Well, certainly a huge amount of the choral repertoire comes out of the church, and that's part of a tradition that's important for a whole host of reasons. But I don't think the uh, Christian point of view is the only one here. And we have so many other uh, religions that we sing about and so many other vocal traditions and things that are separate from religion that really connect us with spirituality in a whole host of different ways. So while... It's easy to find a chorus doing a performance in a church Mm -hmm. on any given night. Um, That shouldn't be limiting to us. There are so many other ways that we connect with our humanity, with our spirituality, and with one another. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I do sometimes wonder, though, whether the the fact that choruses perform so often in churches is kind of hindering the choral arts in a way, because there's a very much an association, even when even when the repertoire has nothing to do with, with Christianity or even organized religion, and perhaps it's not even particularly spiritual repertoire, but the fact that it's being performed in churches, I think, sort of creates a kind of a perception of choral music as being very tied into that community. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that, that that's something that could change, should change, or is it, I mean, obviously churches often have beautiful acoustics, so that's one thing, right? Beautiful acoustics, and so often when the repertoire uh, leads you there, because that's where, let's say, Bach intended Mm. for that 
piece of music to be sung, many music director will insist that that's where that music is performed. Churches are a challenge sometimes, though, because frankly, they're not built in a way that is necessarily welcoming to an audience. Um, you know, the number of restrooms is tied with the success of a performance um, <laughs> in many ways. You know, can I park? Did I have a, an easy time getting in? Is the pew too hard? There are a lot of things. Can I have a glass of wine? <laughs> there are a lot of things that affect our concert going experience. Sure. And every group has to think about that. Well, we're approaching the end of our hour together, Anne, I'm really sorry to say. But before we go, I'd love to do a little bit of future gazing with you and look maybe at some of the more innovations going on right now, too. First of all, what are some of the most innovative things going on in the choral world today that are opening new frontiers for choral music and its audiences? A lot of our members are thinking in innovative ways and trying new things. You know, it's been fun to watch Eric Whitaker online with his virtual choir. Mm -hmm. That's certainly something to watch and has been used in a great way that a lot of... Sorry. So for those of you that don't know, um, Eric Whitaker is a very famous contemporary composer primarily of choral music and he's been experimenting a lot with the internet um, two times now he's created this experience called the virtual choir where singers from all over the world um, perform one of the lines soprano alto tenor or bass to a piece of music written by eric whitaker so he's done it two times luxa was the first time and earlier this year he used his his uh, song sleep and all the uh, people who performed in the work uh, could upload videos of themselves singing their line to one of his songs to YouTube and then he had an, a group of engineers splice together a complete choral version of the song with participants from all over the world and the tracks are available to be listened to on YouTube. It's a pretty interesting project, I think. We actually had a member of our staff participate. He uploaded his audition and went through the whole process and got a chance to interview Eric and tweet about it. So we all experienced it virtually. Yeah, I think we'll be seeing more thing, ex interesting experiments like that in the future, I think. Um, so another question for you, Anne, before you go, what are your hopes for the future of choral music in this country and what needs to happen in order, of these, in, in order for these hopes to be fulfilled? Well, I think the future looks very bright and choral music is a big part of a bright future for a lot of us. But the big concern that I have is really about the opportunity for kids to sing. Mm. And I hope that as we trim away in schools and do all the belt tightening that we're doing all across the country on all kinds of fronts, we don't eliminate that opportunity for children to have wonderful singing experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely crucial. And uh, I'm, I'm really hoping that we, here in the Bay Area as well, with, um, you know, it seems like people are making a real effort to try and get choral singing programs going in the schools but it's hard work mm -hmm, um, absolutely so thanks very much Anne for taking the time out of your really hectic conference schedule this week to join me in the studio tonight it's been so wonderful conversing with you it's been great to be here I'm a big fan of voice box oh thank you very much to find out more about Chorus America please visit the organization's website at chorusamerica.org Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim, and the membership and development director is John Bischoff. This week's report from the Chorus America conference was brought to you by Molly Samuel. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a crucial tax-deductible donation to keep us on air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link.
Check out our free weekly podcasts on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org and also visit our homepage at voicebox-media.org to mull over and respond to the question of the week. Please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can also write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org or call us with your comments and questions at 415-841-4121, extension 3515. That's 415-841-4121, extension 3515. Next week, Voicebox takes a short break while KALW's eminent host, Alan Farley, presents the latest instalment of his wonderful documentary series all about Ira Gershwin. Voicebox will return to the airwaves the following Friday from 10 till 11pm as usual here on KALW. I'll play us out with a track by one of this country's most pugnacious choral music innovators. Here's the virtual choir performance of Sleep by Eric Whitaker. Check out the project on YouTube and have a songful week. <laughs>